Welcome to the AMR Studio, a podcast dedicated to the multidisciplinary research on antimicrobial resistance, hosted by the Uppsala Antibiotic Center. Hi, I am Eva Garmendia. And I'm Jenny Jagman. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the AMR Studio. Today, for this episode of September, we actually have a two-for-one. So we are bringing you an interview with two different people, Bruce Blow and Elliot Pauli from the RTI and CC4CAR project. Before we start, actually, Jenny's going to come in and clarify a couple of things about the interview so you have a better listening experience. So yeah, I mentioned it actually in the interview a couple of times, but I feel the need to say it now as well. This was a kind of personal interview for me because the RTI and CC4CAR were based in the same area I grew up. So I was actually talking to both Elliot and Bruce before the interview about some local things. And I think that kind of put us in a very US-centered and we use a lot of local acronyms that I don't think everybody knows. So I just wanted to go through before the interview and go through some of these acronyms. We actually do explain what RTI and CC for CARB are, but I want to give you this from the start. So it's a little easier to follow. So the RTI is the Research Triangle Institute and CC for CARB stands for the Chemistry Center for Combating Antibiotic Resistant Bacteria. So this is where they're actually based in the project they're working on. There's a lot of uh, U.S.-based acronyms, so like department names. We have the USDA, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, the NIH, the National Institute of Health, NIAID, the National Institution of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, and the FDA, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. We also use some acronyms that are based on like pharmaceuticals in English, including CNS, Central Nervous System, QC, Quality Control, and IP, so intellectual property. There's also one just random local acronym, UNCS University of North Carolina. I just wanted to clarify what that was because it wasn't super clear from the interview. They knew that I knew what that was. <laughs> but I think that covers it. So we're going to go ahead to, to the interview. Welcome everyone to this month's interview. We have a special setup today. We actually have two guests that we're interviewing, Dr. Bruce Blau and Mr. Elliot Polly, And I'd like you guys to introduce yourselves separately if you could. So could we start with you, Bruce? Sure. So my name is Bruce Blau. I'm a medicinal chemist at uh, RTI International, which was used to be known as uh, Research Triangle Institute. The institute is in the center of the RTP area of North Carolina in between Raleigh, Durham, and Chapel Hill. My background was a synthetic chemist. I came straight out of grad school. Well, I went to undergrad at Wake Forest, University down the road here. I went to grad school at South Carolina at the time, had some pretty high powered synthetic chemists. And then I came here to postdoc and I've been here ever since. I've been, I got here in 1990. So I've been here for almost 32 years in September. Came here and I did most of my work was in CNS pharmacology and medicinal chemistry and drug discovery. We are a pretty big NIDA lab. So National Institute of Drug Abuse has their drug supply program here, which is the distribution of all the controlled substances. And so a lot of the people here have been working in the area of drug abuse, uh, just about every drug you can think of we work with here. So I did a lot of work in that area and with uh, nicotine, cocaine, methamphetamine, psychedelics, which is all the rage right now. So I'm, I'm still into that. So I got into the antimicrobial world because of bug bug signaling. So we had a client come approach us named Mark Light, who does a lot of kind of crazy stuff. Uh, he's kind of a outlier in, in the bug field. And he uh, was interested in looking at catecholamines and how they affected bug signaling. And it turns out norepinephrine can really jack up the growth of bugs very, very quickly. 
he discovered that, which is really interesting. And he came to us and then I was doing a lot of small molecule neurotransmitter releaser work, which is mimicking the catecholamine neurotransmitters. And so we started working together because we thought the compounds I was making might do the same thing as what they were seeing with norepinephrine. And so I got into the bug bug signaling world and which is fascinating. I love it. I, I went to mm-hmm. several of the ACS conferences and it was really super, super cool. I mean, just crazy signaling pathways. And so you had no, no microbiology really incorporated before this, this was your intro to microbiology. Correct. I went, jumped straight into Vibrio and all that signaling and homocerin lactones. And, um, you know, because that's a lot more mechanistic and, and, mm-hmm. you know, molecular driven type research. And, uh, it was fascinating. I, I really loved it. What we, you know, went to my first antibiotic meeting was, uh, in New Orleans. And I was, I, I love that too, as well. Cause it was, mm-hmm. there was weather and bugs and there was bugs <laughs> everywhere. And when I came home, I tell people, I, I, I knew I turned into a bug person because I watched the wrath of Khan and I'm probably watched it 25 times and I never had this reaction. But then when I watched it the 26th time, when he, when they go to the place and at the beginning and they're looking for life forms in this place where Khan's supposed to be, I'm mm-hmm. like, wait a second, there's bugs everywhere. They can't pick up the bugs in their little tricorder. <laughs> so it was, uh, I knew I'd flipped to thinking like a bug person. So I started there and then I got into some host defense work. So I actually have a grant with Christy Ansley at UNC to look at autophagy adduction as a way to kill bugs instead of macrophages and other similar cells. And then I slipped into working with a professor at UNC on efflux pump inhibitors mm-hmm. as well. And then I started getting into some straight, you know, more traditional bug drugs through some contracts mechanisms. And then CC for carb came around and I started doing, you know, straight up, you know, gram negative drug discovery through that. So that's kind of how I got into this whole thing. Still very active in uh, CNS pharmacology and CNS yeah. drug though, which is I've been doing it for years, and I'm pretty well known or within that small drug abuse community. It's a really nice pathway tying together these different kind of different fields. I mean, it's not a clear path as you say, but I like the the stepwise path. It's really nice. Pharmacology is so big in CNS field, but when I got to the bug field, I was surprised there wasn't a whole lot of pharmacology. It's more when I went to the meeting, it was either like you were a growth person or you were a genetics person. And yeah. in between, there wasn't a lot of pharmacology. And I was like, I would gravitate towards the people that were looking at receptors and, and the mm-hmm. signaling stuff, which is also very receptor driven. So I was really interested in that. And that, that's why I kind of moved in that direction. Yeah, I found your niche. Well, that's great. Uh, Elliot, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? I started early on with, with uh, my fascination with antibiotics. So first off, I became a microbiologist. Um, that's what my undergrad's in. And as I slowly learned more about microbiology, I gravitated into infectious epidemiology. So I would say that it's interesting how I kind of ended up here with within this area. First off, late high school is when I was introduced to microbiology. Mm-hmm. I just realized, wow, you know, this is pretty fascinating. So I've been quite fortunate to kind of live out some of my earlyhood passions. And um, what I do right now, though, in my current position within RTI as I'm a program manager for the development of small molecules. And um, I would say 95% of the small molecules, if not 99% of the small molecules are antibiotic. So I've gotten to utilize both my background in micro and infectious epidemiology within development. I've helped run just about anything and everything under CMC or the chemistry manufacturing and controls, which would consist of obviously the creation of the API and or drug substance, and then all the way through to any dosage form into a human, whether it's uh, IV, solid oral dosage, et cetera. 
So very much through the development, not just like discovering an active component. So me and Bruce are an interesting blend because Bruce is very knowledgeable about the discovery. Yeah. I've worked with a lot of med chemists, particularly in the antibiotic world, and I enjoy Bruce's fluidity and understanding things a little bit differently because he wasn't adapted to the environment early on and wasn't mm -hmm. biased to the current processes. So I see Bruce as, there's no doubt about it, I have to look to him full-blown for discovery. And then when anything gravitates away from his desk, the likelihood of me and him hopefully progressing those will be quite high because, again, he's got discovery in the bag, wherein development has been from A to Z now. And I mean, during the development, again, not only CMC, but I've helped run over probably a thousand animal studies and or in vitro non-clinical studies, been involved with about 25, 30 different clinical trials, all of which were mainly in tuberculosis. Mm -hmm. I've helped write the fast track applications, the orphan designation applications, and helped to pave the pathway for future research for tuberculosis, which didn't exist 15 years ago when I started. No, it's been a relatively neglected field. I'm just really enjoying the, the differences between your backgrounds. And like you say, this, this kind of that you guys are an interesting combination because you have somebody who kind of fell into microbiology, fell into AMR research, became interested, but I mean, not maybe through a very clear path. And somebody that was very driven by an interest in microbiology from the beginning, coming into AMR research, and having these different backgrounds with like a lot of focus on the development and a lot of focus on the discovery. It's, it fits very well with um, the Uppsala Antibiotic Center is our host. It's an school focusing on interdisciplinary education, teaching PhD students, basically, with lots of different backgrounds and different focuses of AMR. It's nice to kind of see this exemplified in a much bigger setting. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's been a lot of fun, you know, working with Elliot, who has a lot more background in, in microbiology than I do uh, as far mm -hmm. as historically. And it's, but I come from a kind of a little bit of an outsider perspective for a lot of the things. And I think that's what yeah. Elliot was getting. You know, having worked in CNS pharmacology is pretty advanced. Mm -hmm. Microbiology pharmacology isn't as advanced. So it's, you know, seeing that and knowing, you know, I ask a lot of questions from my perspective because it's because it's a little bit different from from where I came from. I feel like it's time to kind of get to the center of things. So we've talked about a little bit about RTI. I mentioned CC for carb. Uh, so let's start with RTI, uh, Research Triangle Institute, if I got the names right. Could you tell us a little bit about what this institute is and its overreaching goal? So the institute was set up in the late 50s from the North Carolina state legislature started it. Mm -hmm. And the idea was to, you know, to take advantage of the local universities. The concept I think was to take their basic research and then move it over to this as a kind of an applied research translational kind of group. But that never really happened. <laughs> no. So the Institute grew. It's been around, you know, since like 1958 or 59. And it's been just contract research Institute, pretty enormous. Right now we have close to 6,000 employees. Pre-COVID there were 30, what, 800 on the campus, something like that here. We do everything, just about anything you can think of we do or have done. My group, the Center for Drug Discovery, started with Natural Products Group from Monroe Wall, who came from the USDA. He discovered Taxol and Camptothecan, which were two of the big cancer drugs. We started as a pretty big cancer lab and kind of morphed into other things. But RTI as a whole, we, we do environmental work, a lot of global health. We do a lot of statistics work, epidemiology, yeah. education engineering, materials development. The best way I've always summed up RTI, if it can be researched, RTI is researching it. Yeah, that's, that's the definitely the feeling I got when I started looking into it. And I, I feel the need now to, to say also 
for the listeners, we talked about this before. I actually grew up in the area where this um, this organization is based and the Research Triangle Park area. So I was surprised that I didn't know so much about this. And I really enjoyed reading more about it. But I was blown away by how much it was. I was very fascinated by the organization. It really kind of feeds into this, um, like I said, the UAC style of interdisciplinarity. I mean, it seemed very interconnected, very interactive between groups, which I must foster a pretty good environment when it comes to research. Well, it, I have to say one thing, we've always worked in groups in our group, and I know we, mm-hmm. we compete with a lot of academic kind of groups and individuals. And, um, you know, 30 years ago, 20 years ago, most of the academic groups were all individuals. And I never really realized that. I just assumed everyone was like us and we all worked together. Yeah. Um, I would go talk to people. They were always, no, no, we don't get any help from anybody. We're all compete oh, with wow. everybody internally. You know, we've always worked together. And part of it's because we... <laughs> Parts because we have to sign timesheets for hours and stuff like that. We need hours to sign. So, but you know, it's, it's always been good. And everybody here is, uh, our group is really fantastic. We have a really good group of guys here in the center for drug discovery, mm-hmm. but yeah, our group runs very laid back and this different parts of RTI run differently. Our group mm-hmm. runs more academic like, and we have a lot of freedom. Other groups are way more structured than we are. Maybe, Elliot, maybe you could tell us a little bit more about CC for CARB and how that fits into the RTI setup. I couldn't think of a better project than CC for CARB to talk about cross-collaboration yeah. in conjunction with the group that I'm in and in addition to Bruce's. So the Chemistry Center for Combating Antibiotic-Resistant Bacteria, in brief, and I'll let Bruce go in a little bit more detail to it because he's the, uh, the PI of it, but mm-hmm. in brief, it's a service being provided by NIAD through RTI in a contract. Interestingly, what we've all noted within the antimicrobial community is that there seems to be a fixation of funding projects that are within old classes. And as we all know, there really hasn't been any novel classes created in several years. Now, CC for CARB, however, is quite interesting in the facet that that's exactly what we're after, is highly novel scaffolds and or novel entities that could be potentially future scaffolds for antibiotics. And I work with a program called the tuberculosis technology transfer contract when I first started at RTI. And it reminds me a lot of that, meaning CC for CARB reminds me a lot of the old tuberculosis contract. I'll call it the TBT2 or the tuberculosis technology transfer contract. And that was a big initiative to push for gaining new interest within the pharma industry for the development of tuberculosis drugs, which was being incredibly neglected towards the late 90s. And the NIAD foresaw that as obviously being an area where we needed to get a little bit further ahead of it versus given that we were already behind. And I feel like they're doing the same thing here with the CC for CARB program, yet it's much broader in the sense that it's not solely isolated to, say, tuberculosis. We will be working with people probably across the the gamut with regards to bacteria, meaning mycobacteria, gram-positive and gram-negatives. But the CC for CARB program, in brief, it's a chemistry service for individuals that have a novel scaffold that our scientific advisory board foresees as being something that should be invested in for hopeful future applications. I'm the marketing manager of it, and I try to pull in highly novel scaffolds and things for Bruce to research and QC and assess whether or not it's something that he wants to include in as one of the libraries. Mm-hmm. So CC for CARB or the Chemistry Center will ultimately become a very large collection of chemical matter targeting specifically antimicrobials. In brief, though, it's a chemistry service for anyone that comes to us with a novel scaffold that they need researched. So once they provide a scaffold proposal, it then goes through the system of a QC via the 
Bruce first off, then the scientific advisory board, if approved by them, it then gets further mauled over in conjunction with the NIAID as to whether or not it will be included. After a program is included within it, Bruce tends to make upwards of 40 to 120 compounds specific to that scaffold that then can be researched by the researcher and or by anyone else that finds their scaffold to be of interest to them within their antimicrobial research. So every single scaffold proposal or program, which we'll call it an individual library production plan or an ILPP, there will be upwards of 50 to 70 different individual libraries of these novel antimicrobial scaffolds. So upwards of 50 to 70 different ones. This is just absolutely incredible. Yeah. Just to clarify on a more simple level. So basically what is happening is that somebody finds, say, a molecule of interest, if I understand right. So basically the scaffold, the frame of the chemical compound that they see some sort of activity or suspect some sort of activity that would potentially mean that there's an antimicrobial that could be developed based on this. Correct. So what you're then providing once they kind of see this potential frame, you provide different variants of this. Right. So, you know, generally medicinal chemistry programs, we take a certain hit Mm -hmm. that you'll have. And so essentially what we're getting is hits or somewhere between a hit and, you know, and a lead or advanced lead or however you call them. There's different, everyone kind of uses a little bit different terms, but But somewhere in there, you'll have some framework that you have. And usually, you know, for academic people, they probably want some more additional prelim data to get a grant. Mm-hmm. And then for biotech people, they want to get some analogs so they can get some IP to then, you know, bring value and get their venture capital money. So yeah, we're kind of seeing it break into those two groups. There's academic people wanting to see new things and that, you know, biotech looking to, they're looking to, it won't be their main primary uh, technology, but it's something that they're on the side that they're looking at that they can also get some, you know, data on it. You know, the gram negatives have a problem with, you know, gram positives are relatively easy to make compared to gram negatives. Yeah. What the theory is that, that when the big pharma screen, their large libraries, that the types of chemical structures, their moieties that were, you know, that they made weren't penetrant into gram negatives. So that was the whole general theory behind the overall library here is mm-hmm. to make a set of gram negative related chemical matter that would probably be more likely to penetrate gram negatives. I can give you a classic example. There's a lot of interesting theory like by Paul Hermrother that polar things on the outside of a lot of these compounds will enhance penetration into gram negatives. Mm-hmm. And that's something that you would not put into a normal mammalian cell targeted drug, right? And um, I was at a meeting this past week where they someone suggested putting the guanidine out and the edges to make it a biotopic opiate ligand. And the first question someone raised is, how does that get into the brain? You know, that can't possibly get in the brain, yeah. even though it did. But just addressing that difference, because most of this, the big pharma libraries were targeted at mammalian cells. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's the more general look. And then to build that library, they viewed it as the, the individual libraries that Elliot already talked about. We'll go after small libraries and help them. So you kind of, you're getting a, a large number of compounds, hopefully by the end, you know, 6,000, mm-hmm. 7,000 compounds. And then individually, we're helping each individual project move forward by making analogs. So we'll make a set of what I would call, in most cases, exploratory libraries to see if there's chemical tractability and whether you're getting differences in activity. And then we're we're using some kind of strategies to improve activity. Sometimes they might have gram-positive activity, but not gram-negative activity, which is we're seeing that a lot. So we're looking at 50 to 70 projects to run through the thing. And we're also accepting donations into the library. 
So by donations, you mean int- like things of interest that people maybe aren't going to go forward with, but that they kind of just want to deposit as like if somebody else is, that, is am I understanding it right? Exactly. For example, there's, there are a lot of academic researchers that worked, you know, their entire career. And at the end, they don't know what to do with it, but they want, the, yeah. you know, they want it to be in the community somehow. Mm-hmm. And so for any kind of the bug drug applications or any that end, we can take them into this program as part of this library, and then it will be available for people. We'll distribute it out to people that, that want it down the road, right? So it's like an open repository if there's no immediate next step moving into a different pipeline or something like that. Correct. And other people can then access the compounds. Yeah. That's excellent. That's it's a very open research, open access. I mean, but we've talked before on the podcast about this difficulty going from especially academic research, maybe finding something of interest, and then how do you possibly move forward? And especially the struggle between maybe like as you say a hit to something that might potentially be a drug and this difference between finding something that works say in a petri dish to kill bacteria it's not a drug that you can give a patient and this difference between these compounds so this is a if i understand right it's very much streamlining kind of trying to aid this process between here we're not getting into development necessarily here no I mean, it's really just front-end drug discovery yeah what we're trying to really enable entities, people to get funding to push it forward to the next step. But bridge this gap, I mean, between these issues. It bridges a gap, but it's, it's mainly because a lot of these projects, they were having a hard time finding money to even push yeah. it forward from the very first first steps. So we're at the very, very beginning. Mm-hmm. Like we've gotten a lot of organometallic hits, people coming mm-hmm. to us to do those because the system is not is really anti that even... <laughs> Even within our system, there are people that are anti that. Yeah. And I'm like, well, it, you know, they can't find the money to do any of the research. And yeah, they might be toxic, but let's just see what they do to bugs and see if they can push that area forward. Because it that's possible you could find things with more modern approaches that would render them not as toxic. Mm-hmm. We've accepted some of those in and if they're easy to make for any of those chemists out there. You know, it's that kind of thing with things that have a hard time getting seed funding that might be really good and, and they're kind of off the wall. I know in the antimicrobial world, as, as Elliot already referred to, there's a tendency to really rely on the old stuff. Yeah. And also there's a tendency to always talk about natural products because they were all natural products. Mm-hmm. We've run into that. I've talked to several people, biotechs that have told us stories that were kind of unbelievable to me that they had this scaffold that was really, really, really good. The data was awesome. And that no one wanted it because they didn't understand how such a small molecule could be active. And they were having a hard time getting any kind of venture capital funding because it's, it's mm-hmm. just it's difficult to push that forward. We're more transitioning that transition, not the later mm-hmm. one where you get drug development. Trying to move it from a hit to a solid lead to then do the more traditional med chem, which mm-hmm. would be drug ability, you know, me- metabolic stability, uh, absorption, oral. More kind of showing the promise then, I guess, the potential. Improving the efficacy of the compounds is where we're at, focused on. It, it is. However, what we're after in the end, actually, is if there is something that Bruce and the our external colleagues discover, is that that's where RTI is quite an interesting infrastructure to collaborate with, because we've already run through public-private partnerships in regards to antimicrobials. And um, in fact, the, I'd say one of the most successful ones in the world right now, which is the Global Alliance for TB Drug Development. Yeah. Protomidid, which is their main compound, was founded within RTI via this TBT2 contract. So I have a lot of faith in this CC per carb and that once we do discover things, that there will be opportunities to facilitate our collaborators, our external partners in their search also for 
either Bruce on additional iterative MedChem, and then obviously further on there, hopefully they'll recycle some of the experience that we've had now with the 20 years of development of a tuberculosis drug and or combination. Yeah, that's definitely an advantage of this kind of organization that there's, it's not just like, oh, here's something and then bye. Like there, there's a potential maybe future collaborations. Like you say, there's a framework that exists that maybe can help other projects that can help move them forward. In the bug world, it's kind of interesting because there's a lot of things that are pretty advanced. And even already, for example, vancomycin, which we're working on, and we've already found some really lightning hot compounds for vancomycin in gram negatives. I mean, it wasn't you know totally broad spectrum, but there, it, it's really it was really good for a couple of select microbes. Something yeah. like that might be of interest to push forward and, and move even now into Elliot's work because it's pretty you know that compound is so advanced. Yeah, you have different levels of things. You have some really, I say basic, but you understand what I'm, it's a more early stage and the more like adapting things that we maybe already understand better. Sure. And there's a couple companies we're working out that have some pretty advanced compounds that they want us to do some libraries to alter the properties and make them better. So that's more of a drug development uh, later stage. So we are doing some of that, but the target was always trying to get the very, very front end hit to kind of get some more information about these more novel scaffolds that might be of interest. Got a few natural products. This is also really interesting, novel natural products that we'll be working on, which is kind of interesting too. I love natural products myself. So, a lot of time has been spent focusing on well, now we have all these methods we can do everything synthetically, but it, synthetic drug discovery hasn't always kind of ended up where we wanted to with antimicrobials, while the natural products kind of has shown that there's more capacity there, if I understand right. Well, I think part of that's because of, there was such a focus on growth. I mean, the growth people yeah. were always the assay and it was focused on growth and they were looking for, you know, other microbes that were making things to, to kill, you know, microbes and yeah. that thing. So there was a lot of focus in that area. I don't know how much, you know, pharmacological strategies were kind of not as, I guess, worked out or not as advanced. Hmm. Like you're saying with cancer right now, cancer pharmacologists took off, right? And then now you have all this, all this whole cancer area. I, I think that's happening and going to happen in the antimicrobial world as well, where you start to see the pharmacology and the, the biology really get of specific pathways that will be, be increasingly better and better, I think, is what you'll see in the antimicrobial world. It sounds great, the increasing the development and everything like that, but I mean, still, all of this is kind of dependent on some changes happening further down the line with how we market antibiotics, how, how they're distributed. I mean, we've seen a lot of companies kind of go under now that's a different question because uh, I know the whole broad spectrum versus selective bug drug thing is, of course, a huge area, right? And as we know about the microbiome and, and you know that stuff, uh, you don't want to kill the microbiome, obviously. So selective compounds are going to be the future. I mean, no doubt at some point yeah. it's going to be an inflection point, but you can't do that until you have the diagnostics ready to be no. able to identify the bug you have because right now you know doctors just prescribe a broad thing because they don't know what it is. I do think once you get to that level, then you'll see a lot more biology, these, mm -hmm. these really specific biological pathways being exploited. Once that happens, then the synthetic chemistry stuff then is very, becomes very powerful. Uh, I think it's going to slowly evolve in that direction. I'll say it a different way. It's gravitating in that direction, but at the same time, I think me and Bruce are going to be in a position to help facilitate that much faster and um, train a discovery. They have an amazing concept around focused antibiotics and mm -hmm. or very narrow spectrum antibiotics. The reason I like this so much is because it reminds me of pertominid and pertominid is solely specific towards tuberculosis, doesn't treat anything else, but it's a phenomenal drug against TB. 
Yeah. And the beauty of that is that given some of these multi-drug resistant strains out there, they're going to require combination therapy or and or chronic dosage. Yeah. Therefore, if you have a broad spectrum antibiotic and or even narrow spectrum antibiotic within, say, the broad case of a gram negative and or gram positive, it's still going to potentially generate these opportunistic pathogens such as staph that then become resistant. And obviously you have the issues that we have now. So I'm really looking forward to those types of technologies just because I've seen the power of a program that is so tailored to that Mm -hmm. specific indication and it being that successful. I do agree that that's the best way to not disrupt anything else in the body other than the fact to target the specific indication that you're after. So in the VACO area, we've already found really super selective compounds for one bug in particular, and it's very potent. Because part of the program, I guess we should mention, is we're synthesizing compounds, and then um, NIAID has a sequit contract to test compounds. So we're testing them in, in eight assays, six bugs, basically the skate pathogens. What I'm thinking about in my head is that a lot of these kind of antibiotic development companies end up going under because the costs involved with creating and developing and marketing these antibiotics is so high compared to the market sales you achieve afterwards. I also have to say, I really don't like the concept around only going after drugs that are financially viable. I get it that the industry is in the position where they have to make money. But the problem with that is, is that people are going after these chronic indications, say the Mm -hmm. chronic infections. And I'll throw an example out there, which is the urinary tract infections that a lot of women have, and they have to chronically Mm -hmm. be on antibiotics. Well, that's a beautiful drug and will make some serious money. But on the flip of it, if you have a an infection that only lasts 14 days and someone's on and off the treatment, then you're not making that much money. And -hmm. unfortunately, we've seen this multiple times now in the industry where some pharmaceutical companies actually succeed and get their drug approved, which is a massive milestone, but yet financially they go belly up within a year. Yeah, That iteration is being repeated over and over, which is why me and Bruce are obviously in this position where we want to help people discover things and build new public-private partnerships that can achieve exactly what we just did with the tuberculosis indication. There's definitely a lot of promise with this sort of organization like CC4-CARB, the contributions that can be made with some sort of public funding, some sort of public-private partnerships to try to kind of maybe mitigate these kinds of things. That's what I'm kind of trying to get to if there's, this is a step in the right direction. And of course, it's a complicated, large issue that needs to be handled on a lot of fronts, but this is a step there. Yeah, there's interesting ways. I mean, like I said, once you get these fast track applications, the, the FDA does give an opportunity to achieve a voucher for things that are orphan designations, mm. which can be lucrative. That can be quite a lot of money. But, you know, the likelihood of someone always getting a voucher for an antimicrobial is not going to be. So there there do need to be full incentives for uh, developing. Yeah. And to pull that theme back, I mean, the way I looked at the CC for Guard program in general was that it was the actual discovery piece of the public private partnership. It had, wasn't there. There wasn't a really a, a good place to do and get a novel thing started. And that's kind of what I expected to move further into. Mm-hmm. As far as we know, there wasn't another center like this at NIH at all. NIH told us that they didn't know of any center that liked it either. And the way it's set up, it's really interesting too, because the projects don't go th- necessarily go through NIH. Mm-hmm. But in this case, everything gets done at RTI's level and NIH just has approval of whether we make the compounds or not within each library. So they don't have as little different than a lot of contracts, which would run through. And I, so we can talk to the client a lot directly, whereas if it was a contract, we'd have to go through NIH to talk to them. That's nice. A bit more open, a bit more transparent. 
it's a lot of flexibility. So we can we can do whatever we want to, and I can disagree with NIAID and ask them to prove it. Yeah, they have so far <laughs> approved a few things that they didn't necessarily agree with, but so they're they're also being pretty flexible too. They're they've been great. I just should say a plug for them. They've been great. Uh, Jeremy Starr and, and Rick Schiotti and their group has been great at NIAID, and and they also manage other resources that can be tapped into pretty much all the preclinical that you would ever need. Mm-hmm. So they actually have a, a whole program that most people don't know about because it's not really well described on the internet. They can push anything through most different steps within the NIAID world. I'm actually a contractor on another contract that makes compounds for that program. And we yeah. scale things up and that's international as well. We do, we've, done, we've done a lot of synthesis for a lot of French company, English company, Australian company. So we've done a lot of different work on that contract as well. So people should contact them if they're interested mm. in something. I wanted to mention the IP issue as well. Yeah. Originally, NID wanted to make it just completely open. And, you know, my concern was we were going to get a lot of biotechs that didn't want to divulge their IP. I voiced that at the very beginning when we had their first meeting, actually. And they have since come around to including an 18-month embargo period. So there is an embargo period from when we disclose everything mm-hmm. to the public for and the public will still get the compounds after the 18 month if they want them, but there'll be an 18 month window from the time that we start synthesis uh, that they'll have time to to test the compounds themselves that we send, and then they can cover them with IP if they want. So that's like gives them time to kind of cover it, even if it's still. You can usually get a provisional patent within a month pretty easily, so they can cover it and get some coverage before we actually disclose it on our website. Our disclosure process will be on the website. Initially, it'll be through PDFs of the structures, but we're going to tap into the uh, PubChem environment. We'll have a little storefront uh, driven by PubChem. For example, when our vancomycin analogs get published on there, uh, they will show up on our storefront, but they will also be, if anyone like digs up vancomycin analogs on PubChem, our compounds will show up on there. And, and the data as well will be provided for everybody. Yeah, no, it sounds like a, a really good balance. Like you said, you want everything to be open, but you kind of have to acknowledge the difficulties that our other people are having. They have to have IP considerations and everything throughout. It seems like a really nice setup to kind of try to keep this flexibility. Like you said, you're doing different things for different people based on what they need, which is really the kind of flexibility we need in this kind of issue. <laughs> I'm hoping we're successful enough that it's a model for other other disease areas. Mm-hmm like Alzheimer's or, you know, just name it. I mean, other disease areas could benefit from this, you know, and, and also an infectious disease, like, you know, antifungals are a major, major problem. Yeah. This could be a program that you could model another one like it to do antifungal research. Yeah. I have a lot of faith in this program that the NIAD is clearly targeting the urgent and serious public health threats of bacteria that are really resistant, right? Mm-hmm. These multi-drug resistant ones. So yeah, I have a lot of faith in this program because, again, I've seen a program very similar to it that had far fewer compounds, and they were yeah. not nearly as targeted as what this is. It's It's got all the legs to create a new launch pad, if you will, for the key thing, novel entities yeah. <laughs> and novel scaffolds. I mean, it's been a lot of fun, I can tell you that, because we get to talk to so many different people and so many companies, and they have so much, some people have crazy technologies we're talking to, like, you know, I had no idea you could do this or one of them, I, one of their technologies I love, I, I can't mention their name, but I've been looking for something like that for years. Then they pop in. I'm like, oh my gosh, you're doing exactly something close to what I've always wanted to do. And it's working. And 
it's been tons of fun because we're working with probably what 20 different library scaffolds right now so we've got 20 or so now can work about 11 or 12 simultaneously we have a really good group of chemists over here in our mm-hmm. group because you know because we had glaxo and burroughs welcome we're two big entities here and lily so some of those guys that, that were still around that were kind of popping around different biotechs for jobs they came over so i've got some very experienced chemists working for me right now that just mm-hmm. love doing chemistry and synthesis and and uh have a wide range of skills you know really highly skilled people and that makes it a lot of fun too because they take it over and suggest ideas and what to do and that makes it nice absolutely unfortunately i think i have to start wrapping it up we've talked for a long time because i this is very fun to talk about for me but I wanted to give you guys a chance to, if you have any wish list when it comes to, to AMR research, anything that's missing in your opinion, you have a lot of experience, both of you working with this kind of stuff. Uh, is there anything that you think we need in this AMR community? So the one thing that I would say is humility. Okay. So mm-hmm. number one, I've been in this area for 20 years now, and it's such a massive problem that the last thing we need is a boatload of God complexes coming in. And reining in on saying that, you know, I'm the savior of humanity and whatnot. So I have to say that. And I, I know that, you know, that's not probably the, the politest thing to say, but what I'm looking for is true collaborations. Hmm. And if you want to give thanks to anyone that works within antimicrobial research, you have to give the credit to the people, the people that are in the clinical trials taking the experimental drugs to treat a disease that is not treatable and or could be treated with other very complex regimens, right? Yeah. So if I was in a position where I had an antimicrobial resistant strain of something, and I knew if I took these 10 antibiotics, that within two years, I would very likely survive, or, you know, the likelihood's 50%, right? Yeah. However, take it on the flip side of that, and look at the people that take these experimental regimens, wherein they have the hope that within the few months that they take this experimental regimen or experimental drug, that then they're in the hope of that it actually does work. Yeah. So to me, that's the, the one thing that I see that I hope the audience gets is the fact that there's a whole lot of people out there, tons of people that are suffering. And um, I mean, again, look at uh, just, I always have to use the TB example, 2 billion yeah. people, really 2 billion people in the world have that. And so it's just, uh, it's amazing. And to think that you have all these other indications that are about to rear up their heads for this next generation. And yet that's what we need are the collaborations and a little bit less ego driven stuff. So again, I I always like to harp on that. I I don't deserve any of the credit for the work that I've always done. I've just worked hard on it. And I believe that the people that do the clinical trials and or the patients that take these regimens are the people that deserve the credit for what actually happens in development. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. Of course, there's a lot of people putting a lot on the line for this. But Bruce, did you have anything you also wanted to bring up as a wish list? I see things moving in the right direction slowly. I think the FDA, I think they moved to the stewardship thing a little bit too much. You know, I see, you know, from the outside of you, I go to meetings and I see scaffolds that kill every single, you know, um, clinical isolate of a, you know, MRSA or whatever, and then it can't mm-hmm. get approved. Uh, that seems a little bit they're a little bit too concerned about stewardship to the detriment of people who really need the drugs. Yeah, that, that would be my wish list. Probably my, my highest thing is they, they need to back off a little bit. I mean, I'm not mm-hmm. saying it's not a big, big deal, but 
I think MedChem has gotten to the point where they contrive it enough to overcome the resistance stuff that's that's happening. Hmm. You know, I, I did see a talk at the conference that um, this natural products guy came out and said, we've conquered everything, you know, because the way he saw it, you know, it gets politicized as, you know, we're in trouble by 2015 and then we'll, there'll be all these major problems. Yeah. But MedChem really is really driving things to the other direction. I think you're going to find a lot of things that work and, you know, the FDA needs to have a little more faith in the drug discovery process mm. now that there's a lot more um, advanced MedChem uh, techniques and compounds and ideas that, that are yeah. that are popping up in this field that I think can keep ahead of the resistance thing until mm. you start finding the biology that gets into things that are really, really hard to establish resistance against. So, which is, I think is going to come as well as they get yeah. more bug specific. In general, it's hard to do that. But I think once you get bug specific, you'll find pathways within individual bugs that you can target that are very unlikely to More faith in the drug discovery and the in the medcam behind it. Maybe also a little bit more flexibility and how the, the regulatory right. aspect and how like development process, I guess. Yeah, that's generally what I see because yeah. I think the med chemistry is really going to explode in this area like it's exploding mm -hmm. in cancer. I see it happening when you go to specific bugs, it will happen very fast where all of a sudden you'll find pathways that, that can be targeted by MedChem that, that you won't get resistance to and, or be very, very likely where you have to change like maybe three or four proteins simultaneously in a specific way for you to get resistance. And that's really highly unlikely yeah. right now. You have, you have one protein that gets, can, you can achieve resistance to, but when you have a whole set that all work together, that's going to be much harder to get resistance to. Yeah. And then you can target that within several different ways too. So mm -hmm. it's going to be, because I think that's where you're going to get an explosion of med chem and drugs and very good compounds going forward. So I guess, yeah, more faith in us. <laughs> so more, more appreciation of the people affected and more faith in the, and what can come out of it. That's a nice, nice ending line. I feel like. No, I think that's true. That's true. That, that's, that's, that's what I would say for sure. So. All right. Well, then uh, I think I need to wrap up, but thank you very much for talking yeah. to us today. It was a great to get the opportunity to talk to you, get a little homesick in my, for me oh, yeah. in North Carolina. Sure. But yeah, thank you so much. Sure thing. Thanks so much, John. Yeah, thank you for having us. Welcome back. So Ava, what did you think about this interview? I, the beginning, I was a little bit confused, as you were saying, because of all the <laughs> very, you know, pharmaceutical and med chemistry, med chem, they pronounce med chem a lot, which is medicinal chemistry, yeah. basically. And I have to say, my dad is a med chemist and has worked in the same place, same field. That's why we were using a lot of those acronyms and they knew that I, I was comfortable with it. It's quite nice how small the world can be, right? Even though yeah. it seems very big, but uh, as Sagan used to say, it's just a small pale blue dot where we are all kind of connected in a sense. <laughs> um, yeah. Talking about connection, I really was enamored with the idea of how this CC4 car project it's part of what we talk about open science, right? Uh, we, mm -hmm. for a really long time, science was very hermetic, right? Like, and there was an example, they were talking about how they work in big groups. And when they went to conferences, mm -hmm. they realized that, you know, academics, they're working in small groups. They don't really help each other in a sense. And there's a lot of competition going on. 
so I love to see that, you know, this CC4 CARB idea of having not just open access publications of re science results, but also having open science materials, you know, the raw things that people can work on, that you can have something that has promised that you need someone else with different skills to work on it. And you have it in an open repository where people can just, you know, take it and follow through with it and take it to the next step, which is great that yeah. that's something in a very, very early stages of development, like this CC4 car project, can create products, put their skills and do what they can with them and then release them into the open for other people mm -hmm. to continue and work on them. And I think that's beautiful. And I really, I'm really happy that we were able to feature such a project in our podcast because Open science, collaboration, bringing people together, having different skills, working for the same goal and overarching um, aim is really what our center and our work is all about. So it, that mm -hmm. was beautiful that you were able to get these people here to talk to talk about this. Yeah, it was a really enjoyable interview for me. And I also just really enjoyed hearing about Bruce and Elliot's backgrounds and kind of how they come together. Like Bruce has this very MedCam background with working with CNS and other like other fields. And applying that to antibiotic resistance research, I mean, I thought it's a really great background. And Elliot's background is obviously very applicable. He's worked with drug development with this before. Yeah, it's uh, a bit what they were commenting, you know, that after the big demise of these drug development companies, you had all these brains, all these people with all the skills, these uh, experiences, and they were able to, you know, get them and and being able to apply what they know even if it's in different areas you know it's still the backbone the basis it's something that they can use so that's that's actually great another thing that i take home from this interview is actually the example that elio was bringing up that he worked on before of why he thinks that cc4 carb is actually very promising and is able to probably bring a lot of good stuff into into the field and is this project that looked into new tuberculosis drug, and especially drugs for resistant tuberculosis, which is a big problem. Tuberculosis kills a lot of people every year. A lot of people are infected with tuberculosis. Yet, it's amazing that in the last 40 years, before actually this drug that they're talking about, protomanid, was brought into the market, only two drugs were developed for tuberculosis, protomanid being the third drug for it in 40 years. And I'm full of hope when I listen that, you know, uh, when I hear about that this project that was looking for something very, very specific, like tuberculosis and then resistant tuberculosis, that was able to go through all the hurdles of regulation, first development, then regulation, and it was actually being able to be approved from the FDA as an orphan drug, so a very particular mm -hmm. kind of drug, but it was able to go through all these steps and put into the market so it can help the people that really need it. So to me, that's a great example that these things can happen, even though resistant infections are relatively small compared to other things, we can find a way to get them where they should be, which is in the patient that needs them. Yeah. So for me, that was a very nice thing to learn about that I really didn't know about this drug, protomanin. And it kind of brings me this sense of hope after the interview. Yeah. That, you know, it, there is a lot of inspirational parts in this interview. And I hope that all of you at home are also getting this feeling that we can trust them medicinal chemists they are there they really <laughs> want to do good stuff and yeah. even though if sometimes there's a little bit of resistance from some parts they are working hard so these mm -hmm. drugs can get to the people that need them 
So yeah, that was something special for me. Yeah, I, th- I thought the, the TV drug exam, the Potomac, fit well also with um, Bruce's optimism of MedChem solving <laughs> everything. I mean, that's a, obviously an over-exaggeration of... But uh, I, I really liked his optimism with it. And it's it's nice to hear that kind of optimism, to be honest. Mm-hmm. And uh, also, of course, Elliot's comments on respecting the sacrifices that people make in these clinical trials and the people that are really, it's affecting their lives. It's not just, you know, your work, it's your life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought their, both of their wish lists kind of hit home with me and stayed with me. Mm-hmm. And just one little note before we sign off of this commentary, and is that recently there is a very cool review that has been published by a dear friend of ours and uh, and a colleague as well. (laughs) A previous interviewee? (laughs) Yeah, a previous interviewee of the podcast, Dr. Gerard Wright, or Jerry Wright, as uh, as we know Mm him. Uh, he and Michael Cook just published a review on science translational medicine, who was put out this past 10th of August, titled The Past, Present and Future of Antibiotics. And I wanted to bring it up here because there is a lot of things that Bruce and Elliot comment throughout the interview that resonate a lot with the thinking and the ideas that uh, Cook and Wright are putting forward in this review. They talk a lot about, you know, what is the situation in the past, why, how we got into the present that we have on, on the problem with antibiotic resistance, and what do they think the future of antibiotics are. So they talk a lot about small molecules, about drug development, about how uh, narrow things need to be looked into, but also more general and broad spectrum things as Bruce and Elliot were also mm. talking about. So I think this review fits very nice with the topic of the interview. And if you would really enjoy the interview, I think you would really enjoy going in and reading this review. So we are going to leave the link below in the show notes as well. But with that, we do actually have some other news pieces that we want to cover a little bit more in depth. So we're going to go ahead to those. Perfect. Let's go. Welcome to this news section for this episode. Uh, We're going to talk about two very different papers today, and we're going to start with something that kind of transitions out from the interview talking about drug discovery and new antibiotics. Jenny, can you tell us about this first exciting paper? Yes. So the paper I want to talk about today is called uh, The Evolution of Beta-Lactamase-Mediated Cephidericol Resistance. It was published in the Journal of Antimicrobial Chemotherapy. Uh, it was actually accepted in July, but it's not actually going to be published until after we do this interview, so it's only an online version right now, but it should be published in September sometime. Cephidericol, and excuse me if I'm pronouncing that wrong, I've actually never heard it pronounced out loud, I think, I've only read about it, is a relatively new antibiotic. It was approved in the U.S. in 2019 and in the EU in 2020, but it's based off a beta-lactam antibiotic, so if you think of penicillins and people recognize it to be amoxicillin, the things that ends in cillin often are these called beta-lactam antibiotics, and it's based on the structure of the antibiotic. So this is a type of that, kind of. It's a cephalosporin, which is a later generation version of the drug, but it also has something called a siderophore attached to it. And a siderophore is something that binds iron. So the cool thing about this molecule is that since it has a part that binds iron, it can actually use the systems in the bacterial cell that transport iron in, because iron is something that bacterial cells need and don't often have enough of. So they often promote like transport of iron into the cell. So they kind of sneak in with the iron. And that is one of the ways that they can get around some resistance problems. Because otherwise, one of the ways that bacterial cells become resistant is that they lose the ability to transport in this antibiotic. So the antibiotic just doesn't get into the cell. So this is a pretty cool antibiotic. It's, it's a novel thought to attach these kinds of other 
parts that have this, these kind of properties that change stuff like this. So it's considered to be very novel, even though it's based on an old drug structure. Mm -hmm. So this is a beta-lactam antibiotic. And beta-lactams have been around for a really, really long time. So there is already yeah. resistance to beta-lactams present, right, out in, in the clinical strains. Yeah. So how do they go about with this? So for this study, what they look at is basically the antibiotic resistance genes that we already know, which in this case, they're looking at enzymes that can break down beta-lactams. And they're looking at different kinds of these enzymes. And then they're looking to see like, okay, what's the effect of this enzyme with cefidericol? Can it break down cefidericol? Does it reduce susceptibility? Or like, is there increased resistance with these enzymes? And can these modify? So resistance evolves. I mean, there can be a gene that confers a protein that leads to resistance, but it might be adapted for a specific type of the antibiotic. So if a small mutation can occur, like a small single change or something like that, that actually makes it more appropriate for a different antibiotic, then it can become more specialized for that one. So what they're looking at here is genes that we already know exist that confer enzymes that we already know exist that break down other beta-lactams and seeing can they change? How hard is it for them to change to lead to resistance for this antibiotic, the cefidericol? Interesting. Yes. But now we're looking at the actual paper. They looked at five beta-lactamases, which are enzymes that break down beta-lactams. And they see for some of them, there was an effect of just carrying this beta-lactamase on cefidericol resistance. Mm -hmm. However, for most cases, there's a change, but it's not enough to prevent the successful use of that antibiotic in a bacteria that carries that gene, mm -hmm. meaning it's not at the resistance breakpoint. Mm -hmm. But then they did something that I think is really cool. It's called error-prone PCR and directed evolution. So they basically intentionally make mistakes when they're copying this gene and pasting it in basically to make a bunch of different versions of the gene with different mutations. And then they try to kind of screen of, okay, which ones lead to an increase in resistance by plating on agar plates that have higher levels of cefidericol. And mm -hmm. they do it in, you know, two times, four times the original resistance level. And then they sequence them to see, okay, what was the mutation that led to increased resistance? Mm -hmm. And It's a pretty common method, but it's, I always think it's cool when they use it in this setting. So then they identified some mutations that lead to increased resistance. And then they kind of looked at which ones they found. They looked at, okay, what have we found already in literature? What's been seen in patients? What do we know is like a sensitive part of the enzyme where they might be important if the structure changes? And they picked a subset for these five different resistance genes. And then they tested the resistance level for a bunch of different beta-lactam antibiotics. Mm -hmm. They also, they used a different method as well, where they looked at what's called a dose-response curve. So in, for some cases, they did like what you test in a clinic to see what the resistance level is. But beta-lactams are a little tricky. So they also looked at dose-response curves saying like, what's the percentage of growth? Where is this percentage of growth affected with increasing dose of the antibiotic? Mm -hmm. But in general, what they found was that With just a couple mutations, single mutations or stuff like that, we could see an increase in cefidericol resistance. And this increase was sometimes at the level that we call the clinical resistance breakpoint. So the point where the bacteria in a clinic would be considered resistant and you wouldn't treat with that antibiotic. Mm -hmm. So there's definitely a huge capacity for these beta-lactamase genes to evolve to develop resistance for cefidericol. They also saw something called cross-resistance. So resistance for one antibiotic leading to resistance for another, which mm -hmm. makes sense in, when you're looking at beta-lactams that there's some cross-resistance, especially for things that are quite similar. So two other beta-lactams, cefepime and ceftazidime, 
are really similar in structure to the the beta-lactam part of cephadericol. Mm-hmm. So they saw that there's cross-resistance there between these, for especially for some of the genes more than others. Interestingly enough, they also found that there's something called collateral sensitivity, which is basically the reverse. <laughs> you have resistance to something, and then you lose the ability to be resistant to something else. So you mm-hmm. become more sensitive to a different antibiotic when you become more resistant to another. So interestingly, what they found... Because this, like I said at the beginning, this is a cephalosporin type of beta-lactam. That's one type of beta-lactam. There's another kind of newer type of beta-lactam called carbapenems. Uh, some of these genes are considered carbapenemases, uh, meaning that they specifically can break down these. And those genes, when they evolved to become more resistant to cephadericol, they lost some resistance to carbapenems. So does that mean that potentially, even though there is there is the possibility that these things might evolve to become resistant to cefidericol. That means that maybe you can give cefidericol in combination. Yes, there's a lot of research on collateral sensitivity right now because that is a thought that you can do multiple antibiotic treatment where you give things that kind of, if it becomes resistant to this one, it'll most likely become more sensitive to this one. Mm -hmm. And it's unlikely that those kinds of resistances develop at the same time. Mm -hmm. But it's also kind of just interesting to know, like, there is this kind of specificity, you know? Mm-hmm. We aren't seeing that many cases where it's easy for the resistance genes to just acquire more resistance. And keep being resistant to another thing. And like keep increasing. It, it's all a trade-off. Yeah, I, I see it a little bit like visually. I'm a very visual person, so I I help myself through visual schemes. So I see it a little bit like um, a puzzle piece in a sense that matches another puzzle piece. And then if you need to change that puzzle piece to match a different puzzle piece, then you kind of lose the pattern that will attach to the original puzzle piece. Yeah, That's a great example, yeah. So it's not like you can keep adding pockets to that puzzle piece so another pieces can match to it, but you cannot have to choose, do I want to match it to this one or this one? And that will happen through selection and mutations and evolution of whatever is present in in the mix with the bacteria, right? Yeah. I thought in general this is a useful paper because, I mean, some of these are things that they've, like some of these mutations were ones they've kind of seen before in clinic, maybe seen something suspicious, but not really explained. I thought this was a nice just like approaching it from a very we're looking at everything kind of view. We're trying to see what we find. We're trying to see what's out there. And I thought that this confirmation that there's a specificity here that it like you can't really do both carbapenems and cephadericol that they kind of specialize these genes Mm -hmm. uh, is of course useful as well. But it does also acknowledge that you know this might be novel that it has the this new approach with the new part of the drug that has this new uptake and everything like that, that's great. But we already have resistance genes that are already leading to resistance to this one because it's not that hard for them to evolve resistance. Mm-hmm. And like we talked about earlier, the Jerry Wright and Cook review, they talk about this as well, you know? Mm-hmm. We need new stuff. We need new things. And of course, um, Bruce and Elliot mentioned it as well. We need new stuff that really works differently. Right. Yeah. And evolution will always prevail in a sense. And if you already yeah. have a good base and already evolved base for it, it's just easier, less steps to get there. When you have something completely new, then new strategies need to evolve. So manage the antibiotics we use with using new antibiotics is probably going to slow down the development and the spread of resistance as well. Yeah. It was a great paper. I skimmed through it, but I was really looking forward for you to explain to us, you know, what is the the key parts of it. And it's uh, very useful and interesting as well. Yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, but Ava, you had a different article you wanted to talk about. Could you introduce that one for us? Yes, I'm very excited to talk about this, even though it is not really AMR directly related. We can <laughs> say that maybe it's sideways touching AMR. Um, but when I saw it and I read the title, I was like, yeah, Jenny, please let me talk about this. <laughs> <laughs> so the article I'm bringing to you this month uh, has for a title... Preparation for and performance of a Pseudomonas aeruginosa biofilm experiment on board the International Space Station. Published in the journal Acta Astronautica back on the 9th of July of this year, 2022. So, why did I want to talk about this paper? Well, it doesn't really talk about AMR directly. It talks about something that is super interesting for two reasons. One is that I am fascinated by space exploration, <laughs> one thing, but I'm also a biologist and I really like to see examples of how space travel and space missions are used as labs for experimentation and to move forward, you know, the, the science in different many topics. And a lot of people don't realize that, you know, beyond exploring space and creating bases in the moon and possibly Mars and becoming an interplanetary species, as we call, these space missions are actually science expeditions. It's a little bit like going to Antarctica and trying to find new species in a sense their yeah. core is to push science forward, right? In many different topics. So in this case, what they are talking in this paper, they don't really present any particular results. So it's, I'm not going to talk about, you know, how do biofilms work or don't work in space. But they put forward the idea that studying biofilms in space, it's important. Because we know biofilms are basically communities of bacteria that they grow in an extracellular matrix. They can become hardened. And it's important in the case of space exploration because space missions critically rely on materials and systems working properly, right? So you have a lot of equipment. You have the spacecrafts. You have all the systems to provide for food, for fluids, for recycling. and Biofilms love to grow in different materials. So we know, for example, biofilms here in, on Earth, they create a lot of problems because they grow in prothesis, in the bodies of people, in catheters. Uh, they can ruin pipes, water systems. So it happens the same way in space, right? Biofilms are already a known problem in the International Space Station, in previous Soviet and American uh, space missions. Wait, so they've, they've seen issues before with biofilm causing issues with the instrument? Yes, exactly. They okay. so they they mentioned that, you know, on earth 65 to 80% of chronic diseases are somehow based on biofilms, but in mm -hmm. space they already have reported problems coming especially on the water processor assemblies that you know grow biofilms and it's not only the problem with the affecting the materials but also have the potential of spread diseases and they are all confined yeah. in a very small space. So we need to know what's going on with biofilms. So in this paper, what they are doing is setting up forward a protocol and a experimental setup where they can study biofilms, comparing biofilms on space in microgravity, in the space uh, crafts, and then also on the ground. So they have developed a whole protocol of how do you uh, study this. And some things were pretty interesting to me, and it's like, 
because space missions are very tight on time. As I said, there are a lot of experiments that are going on, right? They cannot really spend three months just studying one thing. So they have yeah. to devise a way to bring the, the samples to the orbit and to the International Space Station, if that's where they're going. They have to see how to put the samples together to do the experiment they want. And then how do you preserve the samples as well to bring them back to Earth where you can actually study and do the follow-through experiments as well. So for the biofilms, you know, biofilms, basically you put bacteria into a growth medium with some materials where you can actually get these biofilms to be formed. So bacteria get together, they produce this extra cellular matrix and they either are blobs in liquid that they are biofilms or they are mostly attached to other materials. So they have this really cool rod that has different sections with the different materials that you need for a stepwise experimental process. So they have the bacteria in a saline solution, so it cannot grow in one section. Then they have the growth media in a different section. And then they have the material that will preserve the samples either for different kind of processes that are going to be done later. It might be looking at the, at the morphology or it might be looking at the gene expression, different things, right? So they are able to activate different parts of these rods at the different times where they need to. So they are at four degrees until they get to the International Space Station and then they are able to break the seal between part A and part B. Then they leave it for either one day, two days, three days. And then they are able to break in the seal with the third part that it would be the preservative and all that. So I really enjoy reading through it and seeing how is it that they actually are able to do these experiments that to me are quote unquote so simple to do here on earth but when you have to bring them back to uh, an environment that is completely different where you don't really work the same yeah. way you work here how do you overcome these experimental pressures and difficulties and then also the idea that you have to have a control a comparison right if mm -hmm. you're going to look into does microgravity and being international space station affects the morphology of the biofilms? How do you compare that with Earth? So they have to devise these protocols and this um, experiment where you have the minimum amount of differences between them, even though it's going to be different people doing it. But can you minimize the potential human yeah. error uh, on it? And the only thing that difference is that you are here on Earth under gravity and up in the international space station. So. Overall, I really enjoyed it. If you are into uh, space missions, I really like they even have like a like a patch for this mission because it is like an, a space mission. It's called Space Biofilms. That's really cool. I mean, just I, I'm trying to visualize these tubes or like these rods and just imagining like all the time and effort that goes into like s simplifying an experiment to make it as like full, not foolproof is the wrong word, but like consistent. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's really cool. Uh, yeah, so, so you know, space is not only for, you know, physicists, so to speak. It can also be for biologists. Let's say, I don't, I don't like space. I'm not that interested in space, but this was interesting. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, um, Ava, you had another thing you wanted to bring up too as well. Yeah, before we sign off on this long episode, but, you know, we had yeah. two great guests, so I don't really yeah. mind that we're going a little bit more over the typical hour. And is that the WHO, the World Health Organization, has published a small report on the global consultation meetings that they had on awareness raising on antimicrobial resistance. And this fits very well with us because, you know, our 
project of the AMR studio is a project on awareness raising on antimicrobial yeah. resistance. What they did was to have these global consultation meetings on Zoom, online, with people from all across the world, representing many different uh, stakeholders, communities, and they explore how can we do better to raise awareness on antimicrobial resistance. And they ask questions about, for example, who do you think should be the audience of AMR awareness campaigns? What areas are important that we bring up in awareness campaigns? What common approaches should we use in the awareness campaigns? What are the most important considerations that we need to have while developing awareness campaigns? And the cool thing is that they try to get a lot of different perspectives and a lot of different voices and looking beyond, you know, the four peace as they call it as the people that we normally target these awareness campaigns which will be public prescribers pharmacists and policymakers and as we mm. very often talk about here you know these are very big stakeholder groups right i mean public is <laughs> you have to tailor a little bit how is yeah. it that you are approaching different groups and public as you say is very big but even prescribers you know it could be mm. a pharmacy it could be a doctor it could be a person that has a different contact with patients and all that and so, depending on the health system and how it's set up i mean who is a prescriber what's their background it's very it can be very different yeah so if you are listening to us and you are working also with communication of AMR, I think this is a very neat little um, summary of the things that were discussed on these different meetings. And I think they are going to have probably a webinar or a seminar uh, presenting the results as well at some point. So maybe stay mm -hmm. tuned on the WHO page to see when these things are happening if you want to partake on it as well. With that, we are done for this month of September which we're yeah. like rapidly going into the autumn semester here at work, which is very busy because it feels like the autumn semester is so short compared to the spring semester. It's like we're in September and suddenly we're in December yeah, already. I don't know what happens. <laughs> <laughs> and we have to say that, um, yeah, Jenny, we're looking forward to your final ramp up in your thesis as well. Yes, yeah, so I was just doing the math. I think there will be one episode published before my defense, but it'll be the days before... Uh, I'm defending my thesis on the 6th of October, so... Oh, I'm looking forward to that day, too. That is frightening,ly close now. It's going to be an amazing day, I'm sure. Yeah. At least I'm done with the all-nighters leading up until publishing the thing. Nice. <laughs> all right, everyone, thank you so much for being with us one more month, and I hope to have you yeah. back on the future episodes. See you next month. Bye. For more information about the Uppsala Antibiotic Center, please visit our website. You can find a link in the episode notes. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our handle is UAC underscore UU. This episode was brought to you by the AMR Studios, composed by Eva Garmendia, Jenny Jackman, and Po Chen Tang. And a big thank you to Henrik Nis for letting us use his song, Sound the Alarm. <laughs>